Hey everyone, welcome back to the Banana Data Podcast, a podcast hosted by Data IQ, where we discuss the good, the great, and the ugly of AI in our bi-weekly episodes. I'm Chris. And I'm Corey. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the sixth episode, the two-hander edition of the fifth season of the Banana Data Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Strassman, and I'm a community manager here at Data IQ. And as they say, the sixth time is a charm. So we're going to be joined today by a pretty familiar voice. But before we get into everything, I just want to remind you that if you're joining us for the first time, please subscribe to the Banana Data Podcast wherever you listen to the podcast. Not only so that you can catch up on past episodes, but just so that you can hear this wonderful man's voice. CPM, introduce yourself to the masses. Oh my gosh. Thank you for the grand introduction. CPM here, lead data scientist at Data IQ. Last week, we were talking about what happens when humanization fails. We had a fantastic guest, Jeremy Harris, from Towards Data Scientists and, and, and Sharpest Minds. We talked about issues of alignment with artificial intelligence and ethics, especially when talking about safety and power and transparency. As we all know, with greater power comes great responsibility. And sometimes with AI, we can have unintended consequences. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, please do make sure to check out last week's episode. But today we have another fantastic guest. As Corey mentioned, one of the voices of Data IQ is here with us today, Christina Shao. Uh, why don't you in- introduce yourself, Christina? Ah, will do. Thanks, CPM and Corey, for, uh, for inviting me here. I'm so excited to be part of this. So as CPM said, I'm Christina Shao. I joined Dataiku a couple years ago, and I currently work on the product marketing team. And so we do a lot of different things, but in a nutshell, my role here is really about creating multimedia and multi-channel content to drive awareness and understanding of kind of the value. And so in practice, what that means is I take a lot of really confusing disparate, messy stuff, and I hopefully transform it into something that makes some sense to anyone. So that's really my goal at work. Fun fact, as Corey mentioned, I'm also one of the voice actors for the Dataiku Academy videos. So if you've ever taken one of our wonderful trainings, you may have heard this voice before. It sounds like a warm blanket. It's like a familiar voice that I've just heard so many times before. So Christina, thank you so much for joining us today. And before we get into today's discussion, we're going to be talking about a few subjects, some topics that I think you've heard us talk about before, maybe mention some of the terms, but not really go into some things that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Automation, for example, human in the loop. I think you guys who are people who are used to listening to this podcast, probably familiar with that. But just in case you aren't familiar, we're going to be talking about a term that's a little complicated to understand or define, which is why we have Christina here to do that for us. So, Christina, define really quick what MLOps is. That's a a tall order. MLOps means something different to pretty much everyone that you ask. It stands for Machine Learning Operations. And for the purposes of today, I'll draw this box around it that it's the processes and tools that allow you to get your machine learning up and running continuously in production environments, but in a, a safe and efficient way. And so when I think about MLOps, I envision this this elaborate dance between mainly two functions, data science and IT operations. And they have this shared goal or this dream of continuously keeping model systems running in peak form amidst this wildly changing environment in a controlled and efficient way. That's what we think of as, as MLOps for the purposes of today. 
Oh, I love that analogy. Quick question. Where where do you think that the subject matter experts come into play in that dance? Because I feel like very much that they're involved, but but how do they how do they come into play? Yeah, it's a good question. And and the subject matter experts, of course, are involved, hopefully, all throughout the d- development and the design of that model system. But even once you're in production, they're the silent third party sometimes who's judging how well that dance is working between data science and IT is going. So is it delivering business value? Am I satisfied as a business stakeholder by what this model is, is doing? Oftentimes they come back in to start to tweak if things aren't going quite right. It sounds like there's so many cooks in the kitchen. Yes, that is a very true thing in our line of work. Many different roles and responsibilities and all of them want to be the head chef. Interesting analogy, CPM. Why would you say that? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, actually, I think that, you know, when we're talking about MLOps, one of the things that we want to consider is the amount of automation that comes into play and whether or not that type of automation or that amount of automation is a positive or negative. But how this has to do with cooks in the kitchen, I think there's a great broad analogy to baking versus cooking. That's why I bring it up. I think, in broadly speaking, in baking, you have to measure a lot of ingredients, follow steps to a T, whether it's one cup of flour, one cup of sugar, bake something at a certain temperature for a certain amount of minutes. It's very transactional. You know, you could follow a series of steps and hopefully reach a pretty expected output. Whereas when you're cooking, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of a dash of this season to taste or adding a bunch of different ingredients that may be slightly different every time you cook this dish. And I think when we're talking about MLOps and automation, one of those scenarios, you could automate to a T, baking. Whereas in cooking, it's more important to have more human in the loop, more of that nuance being checked, having checks and balances by a a human rather than a machine that's following a series of steps. And I actually love that as a mental model of automation versus kind of a high touch process, because baking, to some extent, you can set it and forget it. Once it goes in the oven, you just wait. And unless something blows up, you don't need to do (laughs) anything. But cooking, you know, you're always taught don't walk away because there's going to be a judgment call that has to happen at multiple checkpoints until that dish is done. And if it's a high stakes kind of dinner, you don't want to walk away. This works for me. This analogy is working for me. And that's why you should subscribe to the Banana Data Podcast, because you don't get one, but you get two fantastic <laughs> analogies for this episode. So you're really getting a real two for one deal here. So after this lovely and delicious baking example, when we now look at automation versus human in the loop, where are the times that we're baking and where are the times that we're cooking? It's a tough question because I think for the design phase, people sort of expect to be cooking, right? Nobody expects you to automate a brand new project that just came in. Maybe you create a pipeline that does run automatically. But once we get it to the point where we're industrializing it and we're ready to do this at huge scale, it's a little fuzzier to me where the subject matter expert or even the data scientist comes back into that process. And so if I think about... After it's deployed, you want to check it for performance and understand whether or not as you get the right answers, the real answers coming in, the ground truth arrives, check how your model's doing. You're going to want a human at some point to make a judgment call on whether or not there's model drift and if it's significant enough to retrain. Or if you're looking 
at data changing, the environment for, for ML models, right? The data is everything. So if that's changing, that can be a really good early warning and an alert might come up. What does that alert trigger? Does it trigger a human to go look at it and then again, make a judgment call? So at every step in this monitoring and, and model life cycle, there's maybe an opportunity for a cook to come in and just like do a temperature check. CPM, what do you think? Can you give some examples that you can think of of where people have figured this out? One of the the projects I used to work on in the past was at a company that dealt with very sensitive personal information, whether it's somebody's bank account, their social security number, how much money they withdrew from an account, where their address is, all this type of sensitive information. And it was very much about fraud analytics and analyzing their behavior online on different uh, company websites with their bank accounts, so on and so forth. There were definitely subject matter experts that were involved in really knowing the clients and knowing their patterns and their behaviors. But we also had, you know, some pretty sophisticated models that automated learning behaviors um, and identifying anomalies. But it wasn't sufficient enough to just have this model and identify, you know, probabilistically, these are the top five behaviors that look like they're indicative of fraud and bad actors sort of hacking an account. But it wasn't enough to just have the subject matter experts filter through thousands and thousands of transactions every single day. There needed to be some sort of happy marrying of the two, because this is high stakes. Somebody's money and their assets are, you know, incredibly important. So in the automation process, we set up a pipeline such that a model would be built and would take in feedback from the subject matter experts almost on a daily basis. We would ping to the subject matter experts daily, maybe 5, 10, 15 different uh, accounts to look into manually based upon the, the cost of the team's time, money, and effort, cost-benefit analysis at play there. And they would feed that information back into the model to adjust it then sort of iterate along the way. And at no point would the model automatically close down anybody's bank accounts or intervene. So it was necessary that a human was there to help guide the process. But over time, we were strengthening the way in which the model was operating and making sure that we were explicitly doing away with any biases that the model have for identifying false positives and even also false negatives as well. Well, when should an expert intervene then? When do we know where we're hitting sort of a, a bad point in the process? Like, how do we know when you have to intervene as opposed to just kind of letting things, you know, run? So that's a, a good question. So for this particular example, there's actually a monetary cost that's associated with the different actions we take or don't take. So if we miss a fraudulent activity, there is a loss of a potential client or a loss of time and effort that the internal team needs to spend making things right. And you can assign sort of a cost to that. On the flip side, knowing the amount of time and person hours spent to investigate each of these cases and transactions, we also have an understanding of how much we're investing in the process. So we can sort of calibrate in this, I guess, financial example where one is surpassing another. And if we need to have more human intervention and human looking at these different types of transactions to counterbalance the losses that are being made by the the false negatives, the ones that we're missing, then, you know, we can induce more human intervention. And I think one key consideration is 
this fallback strategy of what happens when that breakage occurs. Because in high stakes situations or even even low stakes, you really can't take the whole system down and wait until somebody looks at it for a day or a week. You really want something to keep on running and something that has previously been approved that maybe not the best or the most updated, but it's working. And so maybe that's a rules-based system. Maybe you roll back to a previous version of the system while you 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 look into it. But having that contingency plan, I think, is really important to set up so that you're not down when you're investigating. Is there ever an instance where too much humanization fails? Like, is there ever an instance where if a human is too much in the loop that it might actually be detrimental to progress or efficiency of a particular pipeline? Yes, uh, I definitely believe so. You know, it's I, it comes to mind when thinking about a process that's much more like baking, where it's very much follows a series of steps. You should get an expected output if you follow those steps, you know, to a T. I can think of an example in architecture, literal building architecture, where you're mixing a bunch of ingredients together to make concrete. And theoretically speaking, you might be able to infer with a certain amount of different mixtures that you should expect a foundation of a building to be able to bear a certain amount of weight. In that sort of situation, you can run an experiment to really clearly define or determine which mixtures are stronger, and then afterwards just have some tests to check on that that strength. In this case, once that sort of pipeline is set up, you kind of already have your answer and you can pretty much construct a rules-based analysis to you know, determining whether or not you have confidence in a mixture to be strong enough. In this case, if you have too many checks and balances with a human, obviously they, they can't really have an adverse effect in making sure that the mixtures are strong enough. However, you are wasting some time, effort, and money investing in that process where you might not need to. Yeah, and I can add to that my take on your question, Corey. Actually, it spurs a couple different lines of thought. One is it's not bad to have more human input. And I can maybe think of a couple cases in which machine learning's new. I've been doing this for 45 years. I know the right answer because my gut tells me, and I don't trust a machine to tell me something that I know how to do better. There, There is that situation where in, in some cases humans can interfere with the good operation of of properly developed ML. But in most cases, it's a matter of bandwidth. We just don't have enough data science expertise to handle the technical debt of being the on-call expert for every single model over over its life cycle. And so the, the real goal is to codify that knowledge, first of all, into the model so that you don't have to ask that person for their subject matter knowledge and then have them hand off the management of it to the ops function so that they're as self-sufficient as possible and you don't get those those bottlenecks by needing the person who developed it because they're the only one with the tribal knowledge. That would be the type of situation MLOps is supposed to avoid. That's a really good point. I mean, you're looking at it from just a a pure efficiency standpoint, but efficiency to such an exponential value that that just human beings alone wouldn't be able to replicate that. And like, just to sort of, to see if this is what you're saying, it's like, it's just, we're sort of handing it off to the MLOP structure to be able to do the things that, that, like you said, that, that humans just aren't as efficient at, at that type of scale. Yeah. And, and actually one example I can think of, I was speaking to a major oil and gas technology provider and 
they were saying one of the problems in their industry was that their expertise was aging out of the workforce. And I thought that was so interesting, right? Because these people were geological engineers and people with these degrees that I don't even know what they are. They're so complicated, but they have all this domain knowledge and they're retiring. And then they've got a bunch of people coming out of school who are taking over who don't have 30 years to learn the gut instinct. And so they're trying to figure out ways to encode that knowledge into the pipelines so that you don't need that veteran to make the decision. It's baked into the it's baked into the system, which I thought was kind of a cool idea. Generally speaking here, but maybe there's a happy medium where it's not all automation all the time and all rules-based, no automation, human in the loop kind of analyses. What if there was like maybe a purposeful intervention at various fulcrum points? Like maybe if you have automation going on and you're, you know, you're pretty set set it and forget it scenario, but there's a quarterly review. And then you bring in those subject matter experts who have the gut to sort of prod around and see, okay, well, maybe we should change the way we're predicting in this manner, or maybe it's metric triggered. Maybe our model is drifting a certain amount, and that's going to cause us to go into this review period where we actually have those subject matter experts coming in and identifying where we're going astray. But Why is this important to humanizing data? You know, me being the uh, person who doesn't really understand any of this, it's just funny that we need to be more automated in order to to promote more humanization. And I'm trying to sort of thread the needle there. I'm kind of interested in kind of figuring out, you know, whether we're talking about like a comprehensive plan or something like that. Like, how is this going to be able to promote more humanization? Obviously, it already is. I mean but like just maybe focusing on that. So to me, I'm not sure about the term humanization as relates to ML ops so much as letting the automated system augment what humans can do with just the hours in the day. So humans don't have time to sit there and kind of watch for input drift. So what the system can do is it can set up a threshold that says if it's more than you know 5% from some reference baseline, then just send me an alert. And now the human has has kind of a, the tap on the shoulder that's been automated. So it's it's not replacing the human, but it's it's meaning they don't have to spend t- a ton of time with routine and mundane monitoring. Completely agreed. In in the example I gave before with the financial fraud sort of analysis, the analysts wouldn't have to spend time monitoring. They could spend their time doing something that a computer couldn't do, which is calling up the clients and being able to check on them and dig a little bit deeper in those sensitive situations where activity seems a little bit suspicious. Computer can't do that, but they can identify some of the anomalies that are going on and then have the human counterpart intervene where necessary. So it's sort of offloading the things that you can automate to a computer and then having the human take up from where the computer left off. So, Christina, what is MLOps freeing us humans to do? Like, what are we able to do as a result? Are we looking at it the right way? MLOps, if done properly, is freeing up the data science team to go on to greener pastures and innovate on new things. That's the goal, is that they're not constant custodians of these models they've raised from the ground up forever on into their life cycle. So they, you're freeing them up to go and break new barriers. On the ops side, you're really freeing up those folks to monitor the things they care about the most, which is uptime and resourcing, without having to constantly 
always be checking for model performance, model drift. Those things can be automated. And if there's a problem, now we put the attention on it. So I I think the goal is really to not engineer out the human from this loop. It's to make it less mundane, less routine, less overhead to manage in production and to have thought about all the things that could go wrong before they go wrong, to have that risk strategy in place for what is the financial impact if this happens? What is the reputational impact if it finds that, you know, somebody finds that our model's biased to have considered those questions before going live? That's, I think, what MLOps should do. It's like putting a a car on a track, right? So you have those guardrails on either end. And if we're veering off and we hit one of those guardrails, we'll say, hey, you know what? We got to stop this process, maybe investigate it, recalibrate and go back, uh, you know, along that path. But, you know, pretty much automating the boring stuff so that we can focus on other salient endeavors and only come back into play when need be. Mm -hmm. Rumble strips. That's what yes. good. That's what good ML ops alerting is a rumble strip. Like you <laughs> might be veering off the path, might want to check your check your driving. I love that. <laughs> There's just been so many great analogies in this episode today. It's just <laughs> just a real highlight of the analogy experience here. Well, Christina, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really been a pleasure putting up with CPM and I's antics. I know that probably wasn't very easy, but uh, I thought you brought a lot to the conversation and helping define this pretty complex topic. So I'm going to give you the floor one last time. They kind of give, you know, have the last word on MLOps. You're going to be the only single authority on the Banana Data podcast when it comes to MLOps. So these words are going to carry so much weight. Wow, that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) That's a lot of pressure. I was hoping that you all would have the answers. I guess my last word is that this is a topic that we're looking at closely because we know there's no one size fits all solution or, or even one size fits most. But we're hoping that in the next years and months, as more and more people try to really scale out these operations that they're building, we can articulate a few principles to think about when you're designing your system, about where to interject your subject matter experts and your data science team back into the ops process. So I guess stay tuned is really the last word because. Mm-hmm things are still developing. Yes, absolutely. I think no matter what within this space, oftentimes the answer is it depends. There's a lot of ambiguity and uh, we might be facing that here. We have a general idea, but there's a lot of nuance and ambiguity. I definitely want to say also thank you, Christina, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have this chat. If you're uh, an avid listener to the Data Podcast, um, tune in for our next episode. We'll be talking about storytelling with data. And, you know, today we were talking about cooking, baking, and road racing um, at the same time. Uh, so I wonder what story we're going to be telling next time. You're going to find out if CPM and I can record a podcast with just the two of us. Oh my gosh, cliffhanger. Da, da, da. Thank you, everyone. That's all we've got today in the world of banana data. We'll be back with another podcast in two weeks. In the meantime, the Banana Data Podcast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time.